This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Steve Watson about the passion behind the independent magazines that he loves. If you're not getting paid for it, and this is taking up all your spare time, you're only going to do it if it's something that you utterly love. And that's the sort of magazine that I want to read. Here's Debbie Millman. The death of magazines has been greatly exaggerated. But in the age of Instagram and Facebook, the magazine industry does have some serious challenges. Among them, there are fewer and fewer magazine kiosks. How is a person to find interesting new titles? Enter Stack Magazines, an online subscription service that curates the best in independent magazines. It's the brainchild of one Steve Watson. He started Stack Magazines as a one-day-a-week passion project, and now we're going to find out why it has taken over his professional life. Steve Watson, welcome to Design Matters. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Steve, I understand you were born in England in a town called Beverly in East Yorkshire, but you grew up in Hull, where you went to Hessel High School. (laughs) How did you find that out? Okay, yes. Yeah, I did. I spoke to your mum. No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, You left home when you were 18 to study English at Cambridge University. What were you planning on doing with an English degree? Um, I I mean, going there, I had no idea. I guess I always had a vague idea that I wanted to write because I really enjoyed writing. Uh, It was in my second year of university in the summer that I went and did uh, work experience placement with FHM, which at the time was my absolute favourite magazine. And just had a blast. And that I think I was kind of bitten by the bug in that summer. I understand that you were totally in awe of what you referred to as these ridiculous men who used to ride scooters around the office and write funny things all day. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, back then. So Is that really what they did? They were clowns. They'd somehow found this way to be incredibly influential. So this was the summer of 2000. And I think FHM was the second biggest magazine by circulation in the country at the time. So people really cared what these guys said. And so they'd go off to what looked like ridiculously glamorous press evenings and things like that, and then come back and think of something funny to say about it. And that, for me, you know, impressionable 19-year-old was like, that's the dream. You said that this time was really the last hurrah of the men's magazines before everything started to go wrong, and you're really pleased you got to see it. What was the biggest thing you learned while you were at FHM? Ooh, uh, I learned not to try downing a pint of dry roasted peanuts for a dare. Uh, I did that and removed a lot of the skin from inside my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, the biggest thing is when you get put in a situation like that just work your socks off i managed to get a little kind of sidebar thing written um while i was there and that kind of led on to them letting me do a full page story and so then when i went back to do my third year university they kept me on writing little freelance bits that really helped with getting that experience of what it is to write a brief and for money and with a deadline which was really, really useful. 
I believe that your first full-time job out of college was working at Inc. magazine, and that's I-N-K, not I-N-C, which is a magazine here in the United States. Inc. was publisher of in-flight magazines primarily. I read an interview with Inc.'s co-founder, a man named Michael Keating, wherein he stated that he was fed up with listening to whiners in the media who talk about the decline of print. And he went on to say that he not only didn't think it was true, he felt that in-flight magazines actually buck that trend. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure. I flew over here the other day and there was <laughs> Wi-Fi on my plane. There was a fantastic selection of movies. There was all these. I, I think that if I were in the business of putting print magazines on planes now, I might feel a little bit more nervous about that than 10 years ago. Why is that? The proposition was always that you've got a captive audience. Mm. You have people here who don't have anything else to do unless they remember to bring a book or something. And there's this magazine in the seat back. And obviously my job as an editor of those magazines was how do you put together the most exciting and compelling selection of content for someone who is really targeted. You know, you know vaguely where they're going to be going. One of the titles I worked on was a primarily business title. So you know roughly what sort of person they are. So how do you take all of that and turn it into a magazine? It's quite a difference from what you're doing now in terms of the mainstream point of view that most of these magazines on airplanes have and the really specialized point of view that the magazines have that you are now distributing. Did you enjoy that mainstream access? <laughs> Fair enough. Next question. <laughs> when you're when you're doing a job like that, you have lots of opportunities in terms of, you know, I could like fly off to a city and report on a story there. But I did always feel that there was a bit of a barrier between me and the person who I wanted to speak to because as I say the you know you're trying to guess at all these kind of demographics. You're trying to fit something to this imaginary person with independent magazines by and large the people who are making them are really making them for themselves and the people like them so you have this fantastic authenticity and passion that comes through after you left inc you went on to become the head of customer publishing at the church of london which is not actually the church <laughs> but an actual publishing house that's not affiliated with any church exactly. at all no, um, now what does the head of customer publishing mean the guys at the Church of London are the people who publish Little White Lies magazine and Hook magazine. Which is a surf and skate and snow magazine. Exactly. Which is, for somebody like me who's interested in none of those things, still really, really good. Right. Really interesting. Right, right. So I'd been writing for Little White Lies for a few years and... Because these people typically, they don't or they didn't then have money to pay contributors. I think that's different now. They're altogether more professional outfit. But they, they didn't have money to pay. So you got paid essentially in parties. So a new issue would come out and there'd be a big party and you'd meet up with all these people. And it was great fun. That was really my route into independent magazines in general. So I'd known those guys for a good few years and we'd often talked about, you know, I'd love to come and work with you. And then the Church of London had been doing some customer publishing, but out of the blue landed a job to publish a magazine for Google. And at that point they had significantly more money. And so that was the, the great opportunity. So I went and joined them. 
you also, I believe, did a magazine with PlayStation, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. We, we made a magazine for PlayStation, and the brief was a video games magazine that isn't anything like a video games magazine. So we were actually interested in the culture and the art of video gaming, and we produced it as a large-format, improved newsprint newspaper. So we wanted to get right away from everyone's kind of old ideas of what a video games mag would be. You have worked on really some of the best custom publishing ventures out there. I remember a time 20, maybe 30 years ago, where custom publishing was sort of considered selling out to a degree. They were very much advertorials. That's when that word was first born. How have you seen that shift over the last couple of decades? I can't speak for the last couple of decades, but in the 10 years or so that I was doing it, you're right, it it used to be seen as a slightly dirty thing that a proper journalist would never do this. And over the time that I was doing it, that really changed. And I think that it's just part of this whole shift that the internet has brought to all media, that now the routes through to reaching an audience is vastly different to how it was before. Can you talk about the magazine titled Makeshift that you created in 48 hours? I believe you created it for South Bank Center. From what I understand, it was a fantastic experience. It was one of the most stressful things <laughs> I've ever done. I literally, on the second day, I was going over some proofs and I felt something pop in like my sinus area. I think it might have been, I, I still don't know what it was, but it felt completely wrong. <laughs> um, we So we, we had this bright idea that the South Bank Centre in London uh, was celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Festival of Britain. And that's all about making. So they had various strands of like the 3D printers out there and they had like the science and technology guys doing demonstrations. And so I ended up speaking to the programmer and said, well, why don't we make a magazine? Let's let's make a magazine in 48 hours. We'll start on Friday night. We'll finish on Sunday night. We'll just put the word out there and see who comes along. And it was really fantastic. It was really brilliant, but it was so stressful. Oh, my God. I did a magazine overnight once in a class with Milton Glaser. And by the end of it, I, I think we were really about to kill each other. Not not Milton, <laughs> the, the people that were working on the magazine. I mean, seriously, I, we came to fisticuffs. It was scary. Wow. While you were at the Church of London, you realized there was a problem with independent magazine distribution. And while writing for Little White Lies, you couldn't understand, given how much you loved this magazine, why none of your friends had ever heard of it. And about the same time, I believe, you read a blog post by the Wired columnist Russell Davies. And he recommended in that post that a good way to stay interesting as a person was to read a different magazine every week. Why did he feel that way? Uh, Russell is incredibly inspiring. I, I should say I don't know him. I, I only follow him. but um, Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, His point about the magazines is that, you know, he was saying these magazines, each of them represents a constellation of different ideas and opinions. And so you can sit there in your armchair with this steady flow of different perspectives and point of views coming past you. And that will make you interesting because it will expose you to these new things. And I think that that's something actually that we need more and more now because there's this illusion that our horizons have never been broader because we have the internet. So, you know, the the whole world is at our fingertips. But actually, when you look at what happens with, say, when you do a Google search and Google guesses at the things that it thinks you want 
to hear about. Or if you look at a social media feed, like if I look at my Instagram feed, you would think everyone in the world is making independent magazines because that's what I've made this like little rabbit hole for myself. And so I think actually that thing, that disrupting the sort of the steady stream of stuff that is approved and sanctioned either for you or by you, um, I think is more important now than ever. One of the things that concerns me about the way we read now online is how little surprise we leave ourselves. Whereas if you're reading a magazine that's in your hands and you're turning the pages, or if you're going through a newspaper, you will find things en route to the thing you're actually looking for. Whereas now you just go directly to the columnist or to the topic that is something that you already know ahead of time you are looking for. Or or more likely than not, you don't even go to the columnist. It's put in front of you. Right. Like a friend will share a thing on Facebook and then you see it. It's an echo chamber. It's, It's reinforcing, I guess, the prejudices and ideas that we already have. You now live in London with your wife and your four year old son. Yeah. One of the favorite things that I found in my research in preparation for today's show was this line that you said. You stated magazines represent entire constellations of ideas and opinions in one place. What made you decide to double down on this notion of what place magazines have in our culture today and start Stack Magazines in the first place? Um, I think maybe because everyone was saying that you shouldn't do that. I think that it was everyone was getting so enamored by the internet, especially when iPads came out. And I think it seemed like a lot of people were saying, well, logically, magazines are going to die. They're going to go. And yet I knew that I loved them. So there there was a strange feeling of it it feels like this is all going to go. But I sort of don't believe it can because... I know that I really love reading like this and I feel sure that other people must feel like that too. And apart from anything else, there was just a real need for it because, as you say, there were all these magazines that are out there, these constellations of ideas and opinions. And there was nobody or very few people who were trying to point people just towards them. So for our listeners that might not be fully aware, can you describe what Stack actually does? Sure. So every month we send out a different independent magazine. Um, You never know what you're going to get next, but you do know it's going to be one of these beautiful, intelligent, independent magazines that you probably wouldn't have seen before. And you wouldn't have seen them before because distribution is such a struggle. How do you find these magazines in the first place? I'm very lucky now that I'm, I'm swamped by magazines the whole time. So generally, if someone's starting a new magazine, they'll send us a copy. You didn't start by getting inundated by independent publishers. How did you get this off the ground? I already knew some of the publishers because I was writing for them. And I guess it's that rule of three. So I managed to get three magazines together that said that they would be part of this thing. And that allowed me to go out to other magazines who I'd never spoken to before saying there's a really exciting thing going on over here come and join the club again the Church of London were a massive help they built the website for me did the branding and then the great thing about a subscription service is that you only buy the number of magazines that you know you're going to sell because I know next month how many I need to send out that's how many I buy so we have almost zero wastage so it meant that and actually for several months years it did run like this we were in the hundreds you know, and it was a hobby and no more than that. 
But that's fine because I was only buying 100-odd copies to send them out. What was the first magazine you sent out and how many people did you send it to? Crikey, we sent out a magazine called Shook, which was a music magazine made in London, sadly no longer with us. And I sent it out to, I'm guessing, probably 100 odd people. Very early on, I got some press in The Guardian. In The Guardian and naively assumed, well, that's the job done then. The, it's in The Guardian. <laughs> so now everybody knows about it. So everyone's going to subscribe and we're all going to be fine. Oh, I love you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, needless to say, that's not what happened. I took every opportunity to talk about these magazines wherever I could. You left Church of London to become the editorial director at Human After All, which describes themselves as a creative agency who likes to connect brands with people through rich ideas and beautiful design. Now, Steve, this leads me to a pet peeve conversation I want to have about brands and creativity. Because it seems like the moment that creativity got woven into brands we started to use words to describe publication design, words like editorial and art, have now become content and assets. (laughs) There's nobody in the world I wanted to have this conversation with more than with you. Okay. How do you manage through this? Do you know what? In all honesty, I don't mind. I think if you are going to call words and beautiful pictures and illustrations, if you're going to call that stuff content, it doesn't change what it is. It's either interesting and engaging or it's not. And I completely know where you're coming from because I think that that speaks to uh, this kind of like wider evil of just chucking stuff up. We've just, we've got to fill that page. We've got to fill that space somehow. That's content. That's like, it's like hardcore or rubble that we're just pouring in. I think that if you are doing it well and doing it skillfully, then it doesn't matter what you call it. It's I, the st- I understand that in, in many ways it doesn't really matter what you call it. A rose is a rose is a rose. But I feel like it's, and maybe this is just my age speaking, but it feels like it denigrates the purity of what this work means and the intensity and the the commitment to putting out great, great work, to use those terms, it feels like guys and gals instead of ladies and gentlemen. But maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I I agree. If I'm writing about a page or a spread that's particularly moved me, I would not say the content. You know, the the content looks lovely. Of course not. But I think that it, it it speaks to the fact that the vast majority of stuff out there actually is content the vast majority of stuff is just made to fill some space and you know that that may not be what you want to read but that is what's out there you've said that stack started out as a bit of a hobby which you ran one day a week what gave you the courage to turn stack into a full-time job i'm not sure that was courage necessarily so much as desperation I'd, i'd got to the point where so i was working at human after all and i was running stack And I was running myself ragged and we'd just had my little boy. And so there just really was no way that I could continue. And the irony of it was that I'd started Stack because I wanted something outside of my day job. You know, I wanted to do something that meant something to me. And I'd ended up with two jobs that I really liked. But I ultimately, I had to choose. And I knew that if I stopped Stack, I would never start it again. You know, you don't go back to something like that. So it was one of those moments where you say, okay, we're, we're all in now. 
And you started with a hundred subscribers. It's really interesting as I was doing my research and because I can go back in time and read everything I can possibly find on you. There were articles in 2008, 2009, 2010, and it went from a couple of hundred subscribers, and then I read a thousand subscribers, and then I read 2,000 subscribers. The last number I saw was 3,500 subscribers. Is that right? Exactly. That, that's where we are now, yeah. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Ah. <laughs> well, when you, when you say it like that, that's amazing. Otherwise, it's just been what I've been doing every day for the last eight years. But, um, but yeah. You've stated that there are lots of magazines that look great on the shelf, but when you take them down and start trying to read, you realize there's not a lot going on. And you've said that the main criteria for a magazine that you are interested in is that they have something to say for themselves. Absolutely. How does a magazine create that kind of a voice where they're actually saying something for themselves? Uh, well, I think most commonly it's done through writing because I think that when you're writing something, you have obviously really considered this idea and how you're going to express it. But I'm getting more and more interested in the magazines that can do it just through images. Uh, and they are out there. Again, they're very difficult to find and come across because they can look at first glance like something that's just ephemeral and doesn't have much heft to it. There's a magazine called Ordinary, which is published from Amsterdam which takes a different ordinary object each issue and commissions photographers and artists to make art using those objects. So they started with plastic forks, plastic cutlery, and created a beautiful magazine full of these amazing images. And when I saw it, I was thinking, I, why do I like this? What, what, there's something here that is keying into something. Um, and it was when we spoke to them and the, the guys explained, well, we choose ordinary objects because they're recognisable around the world. Chances are that wherever you are in the world, you know what a plastic fork is and what it looks like. So when you see someone making incredible art with that, you can relate to it in a way that you wouldn't be able to if it were something outside of your culture. In that explanation, there was just that, oh, yeah, that's why this is more interesting than just a random collection of photos. So it's, it's always when someone's put that time and effort in and come up with that single idea and how they're going to express it. You also said that readers should feel a connection with the people making the magazine and understand what it is that makes them want to pour their heart out and their soul out into making this object that you're holding in your hands. For anybody that's thinking about starting their own magazine, how would you suggest they go about starting to do this? The good news is that you can start easy with, you know, you can have a Tumblr. You can just start putting things together that interest you. I would say the most important thing early on is get your team around you. Well, for me at least, part of the great joy of making magazines is working with other people. So as the editor, I would come up with a bunch of story ideas and then you commission writers to write that stuff and they change it as they're doing it and more often than not return something better and then that goes across the art director and they change it again because they put their own spin on things and then you bring the whole thing together and that for me is where it gets really interesting i think that too many people try to do it all themselves and you just well i think you go mad today i read steve heller's daily heller email 
And he wrote about a way to make your own newspaper or magazine courtesy of your introduction. It is a service called the Newspaper Club. Can you tell our listeners about this? It's really exciting. Newspaper Club is genius. And it's another product of Russell Davies. So he was one of the founders of Newspaper Club. They figured out that the presses that make newspapers stand idle for most of the day because by and large papers are printed late on or very early on so that you can get them out to readers. And so they built a bit of software that allows you to flow content, I said the content word, (laughs) (laughs) into a page, (laughs) which is algorithmically designed and laid out so that you can, with absolutely no design experience, print one copy or 10,000 copies of your own newspaper. It's absolute genius. How does a magazine create a really strong, distinctive point of view? I think that it comes down to that simple, single idea. There are so many magazines out there now, and it's not just magazines. We are awash with content. (laughs) The only chance that you stand of breaking through in that sort of situation is you've got to have that single, really strong idea. And then how do you go about making sure that you're expressing it in every way? So, So, for example, with a magazine, one of the great things is that you can control everything about it. You can control the size of the page, what type of paper it's made of, what it smells like. All these things should feed into this single central idea of what your magazine's trying to achieve. You've also said that the magazines that you choose to be on stack have to be open and inclusive because you send them to all sorts of people all over the world and it's fine for them to focus on a niche and that's often when they're at their most interesting but they can't be clicky or make people feel outside the club or to feel alienated. What magazines do you feel alienate people? I always use the example of a magazine called Albion, which, again, is not around, sadly, anymore, but it was a BMX magazine in the UK, and it looked fantastic. I'm not a BMX rider, but I'd pick this magazine up and really wanted to read it, but they use so much jargon and so many of these special terms and places that actually, if you weren't part of that club already, it meant nothing to you. And so that's the sort of magazine that I can admire from afar, but it will never win my heart. Whereas the, you know, the, a magazine that can pull me in, so another cycling magazine, uh, which is sadly no longer with us. The trouble with these independent magazines is they've got a habit of dying. They're, you know, they're, they're fragile so little sad. creatures. Yeah, yeah. Maybe your efforts will help propel these magazines further into the future. Well, maybe, but then also I think you recognise that they have a lifespan. Um, so, so, for example, a, a magazine like the Ride Journal, which... I now am a cyclist. I wasn't before I started reading it. I'm not saying that the Ride Journal made me into a cyclist, but they did this amazing job of presenting what it is to be a cyclist and made it just so beautiful and appealing and lovely. Yeah, it's, uh, that's the sort of magazine I look for. Tell us about some of your favorite magazines right now. Okay, everybody should be reading The Real Review which is an architecture magazine published out of London. And there's a trend at the moment away from the big, heavy, thick paper. And so, for example, The Real Review publishes on very thin, cheap paper, but utterly fascinating content. And because they're an architectural magazine, they've engineered the structure of the magazine. They've added an extra fold in it. So it starts as a very thin magazine, You open it and you have your first spread. 
which is then square, and you open it again, and you're into this panorama. It's just really, really well considered and really exciting magazine. Let's talk about the Stack Awards. I'm so happy you're doing this. I've been a judge in many, many different types of competitions, whether they be design competitions or publication competitions, and you often see the same mainstream magazines entered. And so the fact that you're doing something like this for independent magazines is not only great for the exposure for the magazines, but also really wonderful for the publishing industry to really show what's happening now. What made you decide to do this? Oh, it just had to be done. The mainstream magazine awards are typically really quite expensive to enter. So if you are a small independent publisher, you don't have that money to chuck around. You can't really afford to go to a big swanky black tie ceremony to see if you're going to win. So I worked in the same way that when I started Stack, I said, what would distribution look like for independents? When I started the awards, I said, what would awards look like for independents? Um, And so it costs £30 to enter. Very importantly, they have to send in their magazines because, again, I I hate the idea of magazines being judged on application forms. I think that you need to hold the thing in your hands. Steve, you've said that you can imagine a future in which we don't print newspapers anymore because a newspaper is primarily about transmitting information and you can do that much cheaper and quicker electronically. But a magazine is about creating a relationship with the reader. And when magazines are done well, they can be about the pleasure of feeling the paper between your fingers and seeing the texture of the ink on the pages. So you don't think that this is ever going to go away? Do you see less better big magazines or do you see better, more indie magazines? I think that we're going to see a continuation of what has come so far, which is this massive proliferation. Back when I started making magazines, I had to work for a publishing company because you needed a repro guy and you needed all all this this machinery around you. That's just not the case anymore. If you've got a laptop and an internet connection, you can basically make a magazine. And that's what people are doing all around the world. I mean, the business of magazines is a a trickier one. It's very, very difficult to make these things pay and be sustainable. But if you are really passionate and excited about an idea, you can turn that idea into a print magazine. And that, I think, is a fantastic filter for weeding out the boring, dull stuff. Because if you're not getting paid for it, and this is taking up all your spare time, you're only going to do it if it's something that you utterly love. And that's the sort of magazine that I want to read. Steve, there's actually one last thing I do want to ask you about a brand new endeavor, and that is your new podcast. You've done, I believe, eight episodes so far? That's right. Tell us about that. What is it called? What do you do on the podcast? How do you like doing it? And where can people find it? (laughs) I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time. And I've been thinking about ages that I want to start one. So the Stack Magazines podcast, very imaginative and they're named, uh, is me speaking to a different magazine maker every week. Because one of the things that I'm very aware that I get from these mags is I get to find out the backstory and the passions and all the things that go into it. And so the podcast is just me catching up with magazine makers in a very informal and very amateur way because I haven't really figured out how to do it yet, Um, getting them to talk about that stuff. But I'm absolutely loving it. Steve, thank you so much for not only being able to show us that print is far from dead, 
but also furthering the cause and the reach of these important magazines. Thank you, Debbie. To find out more about Steve Watson and Stack Magazines, go to stackmagazines.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 